All right, so today is a continuation on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been doing the Sermon on the Mount since September now. And this is one of the best known passages, I think, the, the passage to turn the other cheek. We use it in the English language a lot. But it's in the context of a lot of other verses in the Bible that make it a little bit confusing if you're familiar with the Old Testament text. So listen to some of these passages that would have been familiar to Jesus's audience in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 24, 17, where we actually get the phrase, at least in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. And anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then in, in, uh, as the kingdom of Israel is getting set up, we see a lot of seemingly vengeful violence that is, it looks like it's commanded by God. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. This is Samuel, the prophet, talking to the first king of Israel, Saul. He says, I'm the one who uh, the Lord sent to anoint you. So listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. So, so now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And if you know the story, Saul kind of does that, uh, but then they, they start to take some of the plunder for themselves, and he actually spares the king of the Amalekites and for that reason, uh, Saul says that the kingdom is torn from Saul's hand because he did not obey the word of the Lord. And then after uh, the kingdom of Israel begins to fall, after the Israelites are taken away into exile, they're invaded by a number of countries, but in this case, Babylon, and the Israelites are sitting by the waters of the river. This is the song, if you know the song Godspell, uh, the musical Godspell, the by the rivers there we hung up our lyres. This is the end of that psalm which isn't part of the Godspell song. <laughs> it says, uh, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did to us on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. They tore down the, the temple and the wall. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So the Old Testament is full of these stories in which a biblical hero rises up and attacks an enemy of Israel with overwhelming force, and with force and with violence destroys them. And often a failure to completely destroy the, the thing that they've been told to destroy, either through lack of courage or through a selfish desire to keep some of the plunder, is severely punished by God. And these are the kinds of sacred texts that the audience of Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount have in mind. They're the things that they would have heard maybe in the synagogue the weekend before. And Jesus' audience knew these texts, and they were actually living in an area of Israel that was under occupation by the Romans. The Romans had worked to appoint corrupted religious leaders who often cared more about their own wealth than the, the flock that they were put over. And so would-be Samsons and Gideons and Davids would pop up from time to time and say, I'm the representative of God and we're going to assassinate the high priest or we're going to lead a, a group of rebels against Rome and throw off the yoke of slavery. 
And these would-be Gideons and Samsons often died in uh, punishment from Rome, sometimes involving crucifixion. And still the kingdom of Israel, the people of Israel are listening to Jesus, but they're waiting to see whether the true anointed one has come. There's rumors that Jesus might be the Messiah, the anointed one, like Saul, who was the anointed one, who would be the new king of Israel and throw off the yoke of Rome. And like his ancestor David, uh, the son of David would establish the kingdom of Israel as an independent conquering country, feared by its enemies, rather than oppressed by an imperial occupier. And then Jesus, this one who they think might be the anointed one, the one who would bring justice to the land by leading a resistance against the empire, says, do not resist. Do not resist an evil person. Instead, we should turn the other cheek when someone slaps us and actually give more than was demanded to the person who wants to take something from us. We're supposed to, Jesus says, not just endure oppression, but actually reward the oppressor. If you've been listening to the sermon series, you'll remember that in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says over and over again, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, don't murder, but I say don't become angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, do not lust. You've heard it said, keep your oaths, but I tell you, don't even make them. But this one seems like it's a little bit different. Jesus actually seems like, almost like he's contradicting the Old Testament command. The Old Testament demanded justice, and Jesus is here demanding mercy. Now, um, we saw in some of the other passages that Jesus would sometimes say that a law was given because of the hardness of the hearts of the people in the Old Testament, that uh, divorce was allowed uh, because it, uh, there, were, there were sort of restrictions placed on divorce because God knew that divorce was going to happen anyway, and so uh, there were, in the Old Testament there were these restrictions placed on it. And this is maybe sort of what's happening here. Scholars of legal history will point that um, actually even before um, the, uh, the uh, eye for an eye passage in, uh, in Leviticus, um, the Hammurabi Code included the eye for an eye language that placed limits on what retribution a wronged person could take. So as gruesome as an eye for an eye might sound to us today, it's actually a more merciful law than an eye, a life for an eye. Um, as in the case of the permission to divorce, Jesus, uh, which uh, was given because the hearts were hard, there seems to be some need to bring order to less than ideal circumstances. And an eye for an eye limits violence. Jesus, however, says that revenge is never okay and that we should actually repay wrongs with blessings. Before we go any further, though, I want to set aside a few situations that I think are out of the scope of this sermon. They're contra uh, controversial, and they're, they're worth talking about, but I don't think they're exactly relevant to this passage. I, I don't think this passage talks about those in the army or in the police force who have nothing personal against an individual, but sometimes have to use force to protect the innocent. In the uh, passage in Romans 13 that I spoke about last time I was on the stage, um, we see that the, law, the enforcers of the law are said to have a sword that they are divinely permitted to use. Now, this doesn't mean that all police work or all war is approved by God, far from it. In fact, there's many times when it's not, but that force is not absolutely forbidden by this passage, which seems to be talking about situations in which an individual uh, insults or attacks you personally, and makes, especially uh, those that make you personally want to feel small and powerless. I also don't have a great answer for the question of why God would command 
the people of Israel to revenge themselves upon the Amalekites, um, but not to take vengeance uh, individually. My best answer is that it's hard to know exactly what the situation was in the Old Testament, but it also seems like, like the case of the police and the army, it's a sort of dispassionate dispensation of justice. It's not someone really angry at the Malachi, Amalekites that wants to go punch them back. It's uh, God ex executing his justice over time in a way that maybe we can't really understand without a lot, at least without a lot more study, maybe not even then. It's not a command to the Israelites to, uh, to be selfish. Um, in fact, uh, Saul doesn't destroy the, uh, all the possessions of the Amalekites and lets the king of Israel, uh, the king of the Amalekites live. He, he doesn't do that because he's feeling merciful, but in fact because he wants to bring greater glory to himself. Uh, by having a, a slave uh, made out of the king of uh, the Amalekites, he can seem like he's a big, important king. Um, but and actually, he doesn't have any compunctions, it seems, about killing the weak and the poor. The, the passage says that he, he kills those that, uh, that were of no importance, according to him. Um, I also don't think the passage means that those who are victimized must stay in the position where they're forced to accept uh, abuse continually. Uh, Paul told the slaves in his first letter to Corinth that they should take an opportunity to gain their freedom if they can, and I think the same applies to those who are in abusive relationships. But let's set those aside and look at what this controversial and difficult text means um, at all. It's an extreme idea, even if we set those aside, and it's one that's captured the secular imagination as well, I think. We'll turn that back on in a minute. Um, those who practice turning the other cheek sometimes earn respect from secular society. Uh, Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the church in Charleston who forgave the shooter who killed those in their Bible study, um, they all forgave and society kind of recognized that something really impressive happened. Um, but it's also a passage that many feel is not practical for most of us. In the last couple of months, as I've been thinking about uh, what I wanted to say today, I, I've noticed that the passage about turning the other cheek shows up a lot in popular culture. Just in the last month, um, uh, it was referenced in the Netflix series Orange is the New Black that I was watching, where a character says that turn the other cheek is for other people, basically. John Leguizamo's play, Latin History for Morons, references it in mostly the same way. That he's saying that uh, it's, uh, turn the other cheek is fine for Gandhi, but we need to stand up for ourselves. Um, they, they kind of recognize that it's a nice idea, but it's largely impractical. And even in the church, in the evangelical church, some question whether Jesus could really have meant what he said. When I was in college, John Eldridge's series of books were really popular, and the book Wild at Heart was one that a lot of men's Bible studies uh, would read. Have any of you read that book, Wild at Heart? Okay, less popular now. Um, so uh, it was an attempt to address the statistical lack of male participation in the church. And most of the book is Eldridge uh, celebrating and affirming traditional masculinity. Now, there's a, a lot in the book that I feel like we should uh, you know, think about, but, but one passage in particular I found really problematic. Uh, Eldridge tells the story of when his eight-year-old son uh, came to him and said that he was being harassed on the playground by a, a bully. And Eldridge writes that when he saw his son crying, he said to him, Blaine, look at me. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm about to say. The next time that bully pushes you down, here, hear what I'm uh, telling you to do. Are you listening, Blaine? I want you to get up, and I want you to hit him as hard as you possibly can. And Eldridge goes on to say, yes, I know Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, but we've really misused that verse. If you take one passage of Scripture and hold it up while ignoring all the others, you will come to absurd conclusions. 
Paul said it's good for a man not to marry. Well, then no one should marry. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Well, then why do you still have possessions? So there's a lot to discuss, uh, as I said in Eldridge's book, and I fully acknowledge I'm probably not the ideal audience for it, but uh, this passage always struck me as a particularly bad example of biblical interpretation. Dick told us uh, a few weeks ago that just because um, it's probably not the case that Jesus wanted us to literally pluck out our eye or cut off our hand when it causes us to sin, it doesn't mean he was serious about what he was saying. And if we want to propose that Jesus didn't actually mean what he seems to mean on the surface, we still at least need to take it seriously and explain what it actually means. To be fair, Eldridge, like many in the modern church, does attempt to give a kind of ex explanation. He says, yes, Jesus teaches the wise use of strength and the power of forgiveness, but you cannot teach a boy not uh, to use his power by stripping, of, stripping him of it. Jesus was able to retaliate, believe me, but he chose not to. So Eldridge seems to interpret this passage to say that we should be prudent and restrained when we use force to resist evil people. But as he writes a bit later, we do not want to teach our boys that bullies should never be resisted, uh, and we do not want to teach bullies that they can get away with it. Jesus here isn't talking not just about, about just not resisting sometimes. He actually is talking about actually giving to those who uh, ask from you and giving even more than they demand. He seems to be saying not just to passively accept ill treatment, but to go further and actually reward the bully. The late Auburn Theological Seminary professor and Christian pacifist Christian Wink uh, offered an opposing viewpoint and argued that actually in this part of the passage of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' advice is something more like nonviolent activism. He argued that uh, every response Jesus commands here is actually a savvy political move to gain more power. He says that a backhanded slap in Jesus' day would have been a sign of disrespect, something one might have done to a servant, and you would only ever, for various reasons, according to Wink, slap with your right hand. Um, a slap uh, on the palm, on the other hand, so if you slap with your backhand, you're saying you're just a servant, I don't care about you. If you slap with your palm, you're challenging someone to a duel. Uh, so turning the other cheek actually forces the abuser to stop and either recognize your equality and challenge you to an actual fight, um, or else uh, go away. Or slap you with the left hand, which I guess is embarrassing for various reasons that I won't get into. Um, so uh, likewise, giving up your shirt as well as your coat uh, would render the person naked, uh, which would be embarrassing for everybody. And in uh, Roman law, and this one we often, I've heard in sermons before, Roman law uh, allows, allowed the soldiers uh, to command someone to go with them uh, one mile, but they, that was the limit. They couldn't ask uh, a occupied person to go with them more than one mile. And if they did, they would be subject to uh, discipline. And so Wink argues that um, if the soldier makes, if you go with him two miles, you're actually putting the soldier at risk, and no one's probably going to believe the soldier if he says, no, really, he wanted to come with me two miles. Um, so I, I, I do find this interpretation interesting, and I think we have to keep it in mind, but we still have to contend with the verses that follow, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So yeah, it's, it, it could be that Jesus is offering a kind of manual for passive or for nonviolent resistance, but he's also saying we have to love the soldier and the person that slaps us and the person that wants to take our coat. Um, now, some political activists will insist that this nonviolent reaction is actually more effective than fighting evil with violent revenge. And they'll point to the effectiveness of the nonviolent civil rights movements 
and argue that Jesus' advice is not just spiritual advice, but advice that actually works well for keeping the peace. And there's some evidence of this on the macro scale of social movements. Um, but there's a tension here uh, between not wanting to be a doormat while at the same time recognizing that mercy feels like an admirable quality and, an eye, and to quote uh, sometimes what's uh, attributed to Gandhi, although probably he didn't actually say, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So we're, we're struggling with this idea of um, the, the fact that we want to stand up for ourselves. We recognize that there's probably some societal value in uh, turning the other cheek, but it doesn't really do much for us uh, individually. And even there's some question of whether it, it works out that well in the end on the practical um, earthly level, the, the, the larger societal level. The NYC radio show Radio Lab recently did an episode that included a discussion of this uh, text. Uh, and they, they looked at the famous game theory experiment, the prisoner's dilemma. Do any of you know that, the prisoner's dilemma? It's kind of a, anyway, it's a, a thought experiment. So uh, during the, the Cold War, in the, uh, I think this was in the 1980s actually, game theorists were trying to figure out what was the best way to respond to provocation by the Soviet Union. So, uh, you know, especially if you think back to the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet Union would make one move, we'd make another move, or vice versa. And so there's this kind of ratcheting up of tension. Um, and so this, uh, this person proposed a, a thought experiment in which um, two prisoners are being held separately, and they've both been accused, let's say, of a bank robbery. And they can't talk to each other, uh, but the, uh, the, uh, they've given, they're given a choice of whether uh, that they can either stay silent or they can rat out their co-conspirator, and it, they get some benefits from ratting out their co-conspirator. But since it's Thanksgiving weekend, and since this is kind of a hard thought experiment to explain, I thought it would be more fun to tell this through um, the pumpkin farmer's dilemma, and so I made a little computer game about it, so we're gonna try playing this. So, um, so okay, so let's see. Um, so Marilyn, actually, if you could come up and help me. Um, it turns out that our uh, wireless here at the church, the public wireless, is um, much more secure than I thought it would be. Um, so uh, that's good for us generally, but bad for my computer game today. Um, but we're gonna switch over and we're gonna try to play this together, Marilyn and I. Uh, so. In an ideal world, we would actually play this on our phones and uh, someone else could play with me, but we're gonna try to do it up here. Okay, so, so the idea here is that we imagine, imagine that there's two pumpkin farmers. And we both, uh, the pumpkin farmer on the left is here, and this is me, and then Marilyn is another pumpkin farmer. And so uh, we don't like each other very much, uh, the these two pumpkin farmers. We're from rival pumpkin farms. Um, but sometimes we're inclined to be merciful. Um, so each night I can make a choice of whether I want to um, go out and smash a couple of Marilyn's pumpkins in her pumpkin farm, or I can make her a pie. Now, if I make her a pie, I've used one of my pumpkins, right? So I'm gonna actually make Marilyn a pie in this first, this first night. There, there, good, okay, so there I made her a pie. Okay, so Marilyn is going to, in response, make me a pie. Okay. So you see we've both um, used up one of our pumpkins. Okay, so then uh, the next night, I'm gonna go out and smash Marilyn's pumpkin. Okay, but Marilyn is still gonna be nice to me and she's gonna make me a pie. Okay, so I didn't use any pumpkin because I didn't make Marilyn a pie even this time. I just went out and smashed, uh, smashed pumpkins. But Marilyn lost um, four of her pumpkins because that's how many I can smash in a night. And she actually lost one more because she made me a pie. Okay, but now uh, she's mad and we're both mad at each other, so I'm gonna make, uh, I'm gonna go out and smash her pumpkins and she's gonna smash my pumpkins this time. 
Okay, so this time we both lost two pumpkins. Does the game make sense now? So, so if you smash a pumpkin, you, if you smash your uh, enemy's pumpkin, you smash two of their pumpkins, they can also smash two of your pumpkins. If you make them a pie, you lose a pie, uh, you lose a pumpkin. Um, and, but if you smash pumpkins, you, if you smash pumpkins and they don't smash yours, uh, it, you don't lose anything and they lose a lot. Follow? Okay, good. So the question is, what is the smartest thing to do? It turns out if you don't know your opponent at all, the best thing to do is to go out and smash pumpkins. Because in that case, the, both the worst case and the best case scenario uh, are ideal for you. If, you. if the ideal case scenario is you go out and smash pumpkins and they make you a pie, you've not lost anything and they've really been hurt that move. If you, uh, the worst case scenario is that you both smash each, other, each other's pumpkins and so you've kind of restored equilibrium. You've both gone down the same number of pumpkins. So that works if, it's just, if you're just playing the game once. But if you're playing the game over and over and over again, there's some different strategies that, that come into play. And so apparently in the 1980s, there was a social theorist whose name was Richard Axelrod, and he organized a tournament in which people wrote computer programs to play the, the pumpkin farmer's dilemma. And so they would come up with strategies, and the, each person would submit their computer program, and they'd play against other computer programs. And uh, to make a long story short, what, it, it turned out that the algorithm that won was the algorithm that said, begin by being nice, begin by um, playing the uh, make, make the pumpkin pie, essentially, and then just do whatever your opponent did on the last move. So if your opponent on the last move smashed your pumpkins, you smashed their pumpkins. If they're nice to you, you be nice to them, and so on. So it essentially begins by being nice and then an eye for an eye. So your, your default state is be nice, and then if someone's mean to you, you attack them. But don't begin by being the aggressor. And this, uh, this won the first round of the game. But then uh, they, they let the winners of the, the tournament continue to play against each other. And the problem is that if you run into a, a program that's always being mean and begins by being mean, and then you run into that, your nice eye for an eye algorithm runs into that uh, algorithm, you kind of wipe each other out because it's constantly uh, attacking each other. Um, so what they discovered is that actually the really best way to do it is to play the eye for an eye, but occasionally throw in mercy. And that mercy will get you out of the loop where um, you are in a self-destructive uh, spiral. So um, I think that this is actually pretty much the way that most of us would describe a decent human being. It's someone that begins with kindness, they're not out to get anybody, and if they're attacked, they'll stand up for themselves, but they'll still, they won't always stand up for themselves. They'll, in the words of John Eldridge, exercise restraint. They'll be uh, nice some of the time, even when they're attacked, but they won't just let themselves be a doormat. And, uh, and that's the approach, actually, that's been proven to win the game over time. So the Sermon on the Mount, despite what some pacifists say, is not actually the best strategy to win the game of life. Practicing the other cheek can occasionally, in the right community, be a redemptive influence, but it's not guaranteed. And over time, you're going to find out that you're taken advantage of, and you'll lose the game. It leads to death, even death on a cross. But Paul told the church in Corinth that if it's only in this life that we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitied of all people. There is a way in which the way of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, can begin to redeem and usher in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, but it's a way of life that's foolishness if we have no faith in the world to come. Um, one of my favorite psalms is um, Psalm 73. It's written by uh, the psalmist Asaph, who is writing probably after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. 
Um, and he wrote a psalm that I find uh, kind of, I think, helps me think about this issue. Uh, David had written in Psalm 24, Who may ascend into the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, so he's issuing this idea of, uh, by living with a pure heart, you can, ha you can ascend to the hill of the Lord and you're generally going to be happy. And uh, Asaph uh, writes, God is so good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. He begins with that supposition. And he, then he says, but I almost slept and lost my balance. I almost fell into sin because I saw that wicked people were successful. And I became jealous of those proud people. They are healthy. They don't have to struggle to survive. They don't have to suffer like the rest of us. They don't have troubles like other people's. They are so proud and hateful. They're as easy to see as the jewels and the fancy clothes they wear. If they see something they like, they go and take it. They do whatever they want. They, they make fun of others, and they say cruel things about them. In their pride, they make plans to hurt people. They think they are gods. They think they're the rulers of the earth, and even God's people turn to them, and they do what they say. Those evil people say, God does not know what we're doing. God most high does not know. Those proud people are wicked, but they are rich, and they're getting richer. Clearly, then, I gain nothing from keeping my thoughts pure. What good is it to keep myself from sin? God, I suffer all day long, and you punish me every morning. I wanted to tell others these things, but that would have made me a traitor to your people. I tried hard to understand all this, but it was too hard for me. But then, God, I went to your temple, and I understood what will happen to the wicked. Clearly, you've put them in danger. You've made it easy for them to fall and to be destroyed. Trouble can come suddenly, and they will be ruined. Terrible things will happen to them, and they will be finished. They will be like a dream that we forget when we wake up. You make them disappear like the monsters in our dreams. I was so stupid. I thought about such people and became upset. God, I was upset with you, and I acted like a senseless animal. But I'm always with you. You hold my hand. You lead me and give me good advice, and later you will lead me to glory. In heaven, God, I have only you, and if I am with you, what on earth could I want? Maybe my mind and body will become weak, but God is the source of my strength. He is mine forever. We need reminders from time to time that what we see is not necessarily all there is. And here Asaph finds that reminder by entering in the, uh, what the Hebrew text has, the sanctuaries of the Lord, which probably means the temple. But it's a strange location for him to go to to get this, uh, this epiphany, this rev uh, revelation, because it seems likely that by the time that Asaph was writing, the temple was destroyed. So it, it might be that he's remembering a time before it was destroyed or that the sanctuary he entered was not actually the temple but something else where he was able to experience God's presence. But it occurred to me this week as I was thinking about this, this psalm that it might just, have e just as easily have been the ruins of the temple. He walked to where the temple of the Lord once stood and there he saw how quickly things can change. And even, even something as seemingly unstable or unchangeable and stable as the very temple of the Lord, where the presence of God was supposed to be, can be destroyed in an instant by the, destroyed in an instant by the Lord's wrath. If this is God, how God deals with his own people, how much, how much more with the ungodly? So Proverbs 25 tells us, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And Paul expands on this in Romans 12. He says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Much of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount depends on a faith in a kingdom that is not of, of this world. Store up uh, for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth cannot destroy. Do your prayers and fasting and giving in secret so that you will be rewarded for God by God. There's a theology here that assumes that the God of justice will make right whatever the scales, whatever, uh, scales were left unbalanced on earth and with weights that are much more precious than we, what we would have used. God balances his scales with gold where we might have used iron. It might be easy to assume that we should be like the psalmists then who pray for the, their infants, uh, the infants of their enemies to be killed on rocks. That is, we will leave vengeance to God, but we will pray that he brings it quickly. But Jesus doesn't even allow that for us. Pray for those who persecute you, he says. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, he prayed. And that's an important thing for us to remember. If I'm honest with myself, I know there are many times in which I've offended someone and maybe even made them feel really terrible. And there are, in fact, and there are probably more times than I actually am even aware of. And it's my hope that God will forgive these times, even as I'm commanded to forgive those who have hurt me. When you've been slapped, it's easy to see how wrong the person who slapped you is. When you are the one who's slapping, it might feel justified. Or maybe um, just like an unfortunate moment when you let your temper get away from you, but it's not that big of a deal. And maybe we really were somewhat justified in our anger, if not our actions. And the New Testament promises that there's a perfect judge who will take all these things into account and with great uh, mercy restore all things to right. But we're left then to assume that we have very little role in standing up for ourselves. Is there anyone in your life right now that you would wish, if not exactly the level of violence described by the psalmist, at least a metaphorical eye for an eye kind of justice so that they could know what it feels like to be treated as they've treated you? I, I feel that way right now. There are people I wish who were no longer a challenge for me, people I, who I wish were out of my life forever. And if I'm honest, I wish those people could experience just a taste of the anguish that they've made me feel. If it's only for this life that we have a hope in Christ, I would say to you, along with John Eldridge and most of secular society, hit those people, hit them as hard as you can. But then I realize that I can probably name a couple of people for whom it seems like perfectly justifiable reasons that I've done the same thing to. And if we believe in a God of justice who will eminently, and who will in the eminently and even somewhat present kingdom um, set all things to right, I would say to you, leave room for God. Paul expressed his feelings about someone who hurt him in his letter to Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, he said. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul doesn't say that God should necessarily punish him severely, but that the Lord, who knows Alexander's deeds better than anyone, will see that true justice is done. We should pray that God is merciful to our enemies, but I think, um, and, and I think that's a good practice even we, when we don't necessarily even feel merciful. But I also know that it's hard to try to hide our hurt from God who knows it anyway. A friend of mine from college introduced me to the theologian uh, Walter Brueggemann. He, uh, he, he says that um, the, these psalms, these psalms about uh, bashing the baby's brains against the rocks or, oh God, then let them be like the, the slug that dissolves into its own slime. These psalms that are difficult for us as Christians today to figure out how to deal with. And he says that they are, um, they are sort of like a parent who hears two kids are playing in the backyard 
and then one of them runs into the house, and they've got a little cut on their finger. And the, the kid comes in uh, with this little bit of blood and says, look, 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 look what he did to me. Punish him, punish him. And with the great hyperbole that the psalmists have, you know, make him destroy, be destroyed like the slug that melts into the earth. And, uh, and Walter Brueggemann says um, that the wise parent at that point doesn't say, don't talk to, about your brother like that, but nor does he start taking notes and say, okay, what do you want me to do to them? I'll, I'll write all that down and, and execute that immediately. Uh, instead, he says, okay, I, I hear you. I'm going to comfort you, and I'll take care of that. Um, let, me, let me take care of that. And uh, Walter says that that's what, that's what God's reaction is to these psalms, that we should, we should view the psalms of vengeance in kind of that way, that there is a place in the Psalter, certainly, and maybe in our life for us to go to God and honestly confess what it is that we are feeling, um, but at the same time recognize that, that vengeance is God's and that God is the God of true justice who knows what's going on. Um, so uh, that's all I have. Would someone actually like to pray to close us? remember it.